Hello and welcome to Allen and Overy's APAC Corporate Trust and Agency Team Series, Trust Us. I am your host, Holly Hart, from the Corporate Trust and Agency Team here in APAC. And today, we have an excellent lineup for you. First up, my colleague in Singapore, Katie Signey, is going to join me to discuss our experiences advising trustees and agents on the exit strategy, key considerations for the retirement or substitution of trustees and agents in the context of bonds. We'll talk about best practice and give our thoughts on how trustees and agents can extract themselves from circumstances that are commercially or practically untenable. Then I will speak with Tim Beach, the head of the APAC Corporate Trust and Agency Team, who will be talking through the defaults playbook, the best practice for trustees and agents when bonds are in default. We have seen a significant uptick in bond defaults over the last two years, and there are surely more to come. Tim and I will discuss how trustees and agents should initially respond to a default, how and when to communicate with holders, and some of the possible outcomes that the trustee and the agents may be involved in. There is plenty of ground to cover, so let's get straight into it and welcome Katie Signey. Hello, Katie. Holly. Katie, we have both navigated our way through the resignations and substitutions of trustees and agents in various contexts, so I'm very glad to have you here to offer your perspective. As we know, there are various reasons why a trustee or agent may wish to extract themselves from a current role. There may be a regulatory or licensing regime change that adversely impacts the relevant entity or may require further accreditation or other form of external validation. It may be a commercial or strategic decision where the business is moving out of a product or a market and they need to vacate any existing positions in the relevant space. In another instance, we've spoken about the advent of bond defaults in China several times on this podcast and have acted for trustees and agents on quite a few. The issue of the retirement or substitution of the trustee and or the agent can arise in this specific context where, as a result of a default, the wider group of the issuer has been drawn into court-sanctioned onshore restructuring proceedings. In our experience, an increasingly common outcome of such proceedings is that the trustee, as a creditor in the reorganisation on behalf of the holders and for itself, if it's claimed cost directly in those proceedings, is offered, for example, onshore assets in the form of securities to be held in the PRC and for which the trustee does not have an onshore entity with the relevant regulatory approvals to hold such assets. Or it may be cash disbursements, which the relevant administrator requires to be made to an onshore bank account where the trustee may not have an established account and does not have the applicable licensing and or regulatory consents to do so. Further, remitting either the proceeds of the sale of onshore securities or the cash held in the PRC to an offshore account may require further regulatory approvals, for example, the current SAFE regime, uh, that are not certain to be received or maintained. These are just a few examples of where the trustee and the agent may be in a position to exit their roles. So then what do we do? The first step is for the trustee or agent to approach us, your trusted counsel, and then we'll turn to look at the documents to establish whether our retirement or substitution is possible and what mechanisms are built into the product to enable this to happen. Can you explain what that process generally looks like, Katie? Sure, Holly. Uh, let's start with the retirement of the trustee. So as a starting point, the position in any standard English law trustee and agency agreement is that the trustee may retire at any time without being liable for the cost of that retirement by giving a certain number of days notice in writing to the issuer and any other relevant parties, for example, if there's a guarantor. Um, there'll also usually be a provision for the bondholders to remove the trustee at any time by way of an extraordinary resolution. And no retirement or removal of a trustee would be effective until a trustee is in place fulfilling the necessary criteria. For example, if there's a co-trustee already in place or on the appointment of a successor trustee. 
So the key point to note on this is that whilst the power of appointing new trustees will vest in the issuer, any new trustee will usually require the approval of the holders by way of an extraordinary resolution. Um, and if the issuer fails to make that appointment within a certain number of days from the trustee's retirement notice or the date of any resolution, then the trustee will be entitled to procure the appointment of a replacement. But again, that appointment would often need to be approved. Um, alternatively, there will usually be a route for the trustee to appoint someone to act as a separate trustee or a co-trustee in certain circumstances without requiring that holder consent. Um, for example, if the whole trustee thinks it's in the best interest of the holders or to conform with any legal requirements or restrictions or perhaps for the purpose of enforcing a judgment or the terms of the trustees. And obviously there may be variations on this from deal to deal, but in our experience, these are fairly consistent across English law deals. Yes, agreed. And when it comes to the agents, the starting position is generally the same as for the trustee. The agents may retire at any time without being liable for costs by giving a certain number of days notice in writing to the issuer and any other relevant parties. For example, a guarantor if there is such a party in the structure. However, as the agents are appointed by the issuer, the power to terminate their appointment lies with that issuer rather than the holders and is usually subject to the consent of the trustee if there is one. Understandably, in the common instance that the trustee and the agent are related entities, this does not generally create any issues. However, where the entities are not related, it is important to engage a trustee in the process early on to ensure that their consent is provided. Note that the notice periods with respect to the retirement or termination of an agent are likely to be subject to limits on their proximity to a relevant payment date. For example, the notice period may not expire less than 10 days before a scheduled payment. The responsibility to appoint new agents generally falls to the issuer unless the issuer fails to make a relevant appointment within a prescribed period of time, in which case the underlying doc documents typically permit the relevant existing agent to appoint their replacement at the issuer's expense. So we've summarised the mechanics you would generally expect to see in bond documentation, but I think the real value we can add, Katie, is to point to any procedural pitfalls and highlight good practices for trustees and agents. What pointers have you got to share based on your experiences? Yeah, we do have a few good practice points that I think would be helpful, and it really all comes down to the documents themselves. Uh, firstly, when you're looking at more complicated transactions, perhaps a, a repack or a securitization where you might have multiple agency and account bank roles across the deal, it's important to make sure that each role has proper resignation provisions and that those provisions are consistent across the suite of transaction documents from the outset when you're reviewing the draft documents. A thorough review at the beginning of the transaction will obviously prevent those complications arising later down the line. If you're looking to exit a deal cleanly, then you don't want a situation where one role is being left behind, as it were. Secondly, once that decision has been made uh, to resign and you're preparing your notice of resignation, double check who it needs to be addressed to and make sure that you cover all examples. For example, is there a rating agency that needs to be informed? Who is responsible for providing that notice? And are all the obligors covered? What are the methods for service provided for in the documents? Just double check everything is done in line with the documents. For agency roles, this may include notifying the trustee and they should be included as an addressee to the notice, even if that means you're effectively sending a notice to the same organisation. Next up, always check what consents are required. Firstly, is holder consent required by way of extraordinary resolution? And secondly, are any other parties required to consent or approve that replacement trustee? 
This may impact any proposed timelines that you have in mind for resignation. For example, where holder consent is required, then you'll need to build in the required notice of meeting period, which is usually tw around 21 days. But obviously, you'd also have to build in, factor in if that has to be adjourned, if you don't achieve quorum, and that has to be factored into any timeline for the resignation becoming effective. Finally, you need to look at the governing law of the transaction and the underlying documents. Are there any specific requirements? Are there any regulatory requirements? And this is particularly important if there's any security being transferred in any particular jurisdiction. Great. That's all very insightful. Thank you. I think the only practice point that I would add is that when you are considering retiring or perhaps appointing a co-trustee or other related actions at the direction of holders, consider whether any pre-funding arrangements or indemnities should be put in place to ensure that all costs and liabilities of the trustee or the agent are accounted for. Okay, before we wrap up this conversation, Katie and I thought it would be helpful to speak to some specific scenarios where we've had to consider the circumstances in which a trustee or agent should resign and also come up with some alternative approaches. I mentioned earlier the example of the challenges that can be presented by PRC defaults and onshore reorganisations, whereby the outcome of the restructuring is that the trustee as creditor in the reorganisation is either expected to receive and hold onshore assets that it is unable to hold or unable to remit the proceeds of sale of onshore assets or cash to offshore investors. In these situations, it may be in the best interest of the trustee and the holders to resign or be removed with an extraordinary resolution in line with the standard practice that Katie laid out earlier. Or you can consider a co-trustee that could hold the assets and or make distributions and the existing trustee could sit alongside the co-trustee or retire. That appointment might need to be directed or ratified by the bondholders in an extraordinary resolution and the original trustee could then be removed by that same resolution. But what happens if no resolution is passed, Katie? What can the trustee do in this instance? Uh, this is obviously a key concern, although in the scenario you've mentioned with respect to PRC defaults, it's likely to be in the interests of the holders for a replacement to be put in place. And you'd therefore hope that the holders would engage in that situation. Uh, if it's the case that you just don't get sufficient engagement from the holders for quorum to be met for the first holder meeting to go ahead, then it's not necessarily the end of the road. The next step would be an adjourned meeting and the threshold for an adjourned meeting to go ahead and for a resolution to be passed at that meeting is a much lower hurdle to clear if the issue is simply holder engagement rather than opposition to the resolution itself. If the holders really don't engage at any stage, then the trustee can look at other options for appointing a co-trustee without holder direction or approval. Excellent. Well, it has, as always, been a delight talking to you, Katie. Thank you very much for your time today. And we'll no doubt see you again soon here on Trust Us. Thank you, Holly. Goodbye. And now it is time to bring into the conversation Tim Beach, the head of our APAC corporate trust and agency team, to run us all through what we've termed our defaults playbook, a guide to best practice for trustees and agents in bond defaults. Hello, Tim. Hello. I think we should start with how does a default kick off and what sort of actions may occur? Sure. So in a typical bond, uh, you're going to have events of default. So the most obvious is uh, for non-payment. So that obviously speaks for itself of failure to pay uh, interest when due or to pay principal at maturity or in instalments before then. But you also have a, a much broader range of, of events of default usually covering a whole range of other things from breach of uh, general obligations and covenants by the issuer 
uh, under the, the deal documents or um, insolvency proceedings, for example. So what we're talking about here is what happens when uh, one of those events is engaged, what happens next? And the answer is there can be a, a whole range of uh, outcomes to, to, to that situation. I mean, perhaps the, the, the first and most obvious is that the issuer simply cures the default. Um, you know, perhaps the payment is made late, um, you know, perhaps the, uh, the, the, the failure to deliver accounts or something like that, which has caused a covenant breach, uh, gets cured because the accounts get delivered um, or, or, or whatever else is necessary for the cure. And then the problem goes away. But let's assume it doesn't. Um, what, what comes next? Uh, well, what, what we're seeing a lot of at the moment is court-led restructuring processes. So I'm thinking schemes of arrangement in Hong Kong, Singapore uh, and England. PKPU proceedings in Indonesia, and particularly commonly at the moment, uh, bankruptcy reorganizations in mainland China under the, the enterprise bankruptcy law. So that's that's one option. Um, but short of that, you can get consensual restructuring. So for example, uh, an issuer simply putting out a proposal to holders to vote on in accordance with the terms of the bonds to, uh, to, to cure the breach, to restructure the bonds in some way. Uh, if a restructuring isn't possible, you might be looking at a scenario where security, if there is any for the bonds, uh, has to be enforced wherever that may be held. Uh, it might be you pursue liquidation, winding up proceedings against uh, the issuer, the guarantor, or any other debt or companies involved, uh, or you simply uh, litigate and, and you seek a judgment for the debt that's due. So. Uh, a whole range of different things that the trustee might have to get involved in depending on how the default pans out. And, and given the range of those options, how involved should the trustee be in the early stages? In the very early stages, perhaps not very engaged. Um, obviously, the, the trustee doesn't have an obligation to monitor what's going on in a bond transaction. It can assume uh, compliance by the issuer as long as it's getting the regular compliance certificates that will be provided for under the terms of the trustee. So we're not looking at the uh, the trustee having to, to follow closely what's going on with the issuer to, to find out whether a default has happened. But having said that, the trustee can't have, uh, ignore notifications. So to the extent it's being approached by uh, the issuer or by the bondholders, either notifying conclusively of a default or, or alleging a default, the trustee is obliged in those circumstances to either take action or, or to at least consider taking action. Now, most commonly, if uh, if the issuer is the one that's notifying the trustee of a default, then uh, the, the trustee will probably simply send a notice out to the bondholders and say, the issuer has told us this default has happened and, and invite instructions from the bondholders. Um, obviously, if the if it's the other way around and it's a one or more bondholders saying there's been an event of default and the trustee can't conclusively determine itself whether that's true or not, it's likely to want to write to the issuer and seek further information or, or confirmation. Um, but but that's really the key bit is the trustee has to do something once it's engaged with uh, notice or allegation of default and uh, and, and and act accordingly. What, what the trustee doesn't need to do is notify holders where there's no news. So, for example, if an allegation is made of a default, but uh, you know the, the issuer convinces the trustee that actually it's wrong, there's no need for the trustee to send out a, uh, a notice to holders to, to say everything's fine when, when that was the default position uh, to begin with. But 
where the trustee believes there is a real issue, then a notice certainly should be issued promptly to bondholders so that they're aware of what's going on and they can consider what action they might want the trustee to take. Okay. So if an event of default has occurred and notices have gone out, should the trustee exercise discretion to declare the bonds immediately due and payable? It's a good question and one that often comes up because, of course, any time you have an event of default prior to the, the original maturity date of the bonds, the trustee has the ability to use that event of default, as you say, as a, as a way of, of declaring all amounts due on the bonds immediately due and payable to, to the trustee and the bondholders. Uh, and sometimes I think the, 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 the temptation is to think that that's a really obvious step to take because it's, 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 it's in the interest of the bondholders. But um, I, I would say no. I would say that that shouldn't be an automatic reaction by any means um, for, for a couple of reasons. Um, the first is that the trustee isn't obliged to. Uh, it has the option of doing that if it wants to. But uh, as you know, it's not required to expend its own funds or put itself at risk if it's not been uh, directed and funded appropriately by the bondholders. So it doesn't need to take that proactive action under the terms of the bonds. And actually doing so in some circumstances might be prejudicial to the interests of the bondholders. For example, if there are you know, commercial discussions going on around a restructuring, it's quite possible that accelerating the bonds could do damage to the issuer's position and jeopardize a restructuring. And so, so the bondholders might not thank the trustee for that. But the one thing I would say is it's important the trustee bears that in mind as an option, because if there were, for example, a very imminent claims filing deadline in an insolvency process, and it was necessary for the trustee to have accelerated the bonds in order to make a claim for, for the full amount that's due, it could, under those sort of limited types of circumstances, be necessary for the trustee to do that without waiting for directions simply to avoid a, you know, a, the right of the bondholders to make that claim being lost permanently. And that would be you know, obviously a very bad thing. So um, it, important for the trustee to really consider the circumstances, whether there is that urgent need, but I would say the default position should be to, to wait for bondholders to give instructions. Excellent, okay. So assuming we do receive holder instructions off the back of our notices, how do we treat those instructions? So the general process for engaging with holders in this situation, obviously, firstly, is you know, record the holders' information as they approach the trustee. One of the things that's always very challenging in a default situation is you start off as the trustee not knowing who the holders are, because obviously, you know, the, these bonds are not held in a way where trustees have lists of, of who the holders are. So the only way we find out over the course of a default who's actually holding them is, is when those holders come forward in, respond to our, in response to our notices. And that's very helpful to, to build up that, that picture of, of who the holder group is, how widely the bonds are held, for example, whether they're held by individual investors or experienced institutions. So first step is record that information. Um, then, of course, verify that those holders are in fact holders, um, either through receiving swift messages, for example, or, or taking screenshots that, that show the holdings to the trustee's satisfaction, because it's very important the trustee only acts on instructions of people that it's comfortable are holders. So we need to go through some verification process. And then the next step is simply, uh, you know, work out what the holders want you to do. You know, assuming that they they hold more than the directing percentage, which would commonly be 20, 25 percent, um, then they will be entitled to direct the trustee what action to take. 
let's see what they want to do and then and i'll talk a, a little bit more about this later uh then they will uh th then we can talk to them about what indemnification for example we might need as a prerequisite to taking the action yeah, that's a really good point that the instructing group may only need to be 20 or 25%. So what happens if you get conflicting instructions from holders in that adequate group size? Uh, fortunately, it's not a common occurrence. Um, you know, obviously we, we work on a lot of these sorts of situations and it's it's quite rare actually for us to see, uh, see, see different instructions coming in from different groups. And I think the simple answer to that is that, you know, most holders are going to have the same interests in these situations. And so the chance of having uh, one group having a radically different approach uh, to the enforcement or, or to the default situation than another group is, is perhaps not that high. But if it does happen, as, as it can, as you say, the general position is, is don't act. Um, it, it's dangerous to give precedence to one instruction over the other simply because one was delivered to the trustee first in time or is the slightly larger group. Um, although, of course, it, you know, it's a difficult situation if the action has already started on the basis of one instruction when the other one comes in. But there is exposure potentially for the trustee um, for liability to whichever group is ignored. So um, our, our general advice in those situations is to try to get the two groups of holders to, to work together to agree a, a common position. Now, if that's really not possible, then um, the trustee is entitled to say that it's not prepared to act absent an extraordinary resolution of the holders. And, and of course, you know, by definition, that can only be passed by one group because it requires such a large majority of the holders to, to pass it. Uh, or the trustee always has the ability to fall back to uh, seeking court directions as to what it should do in, in the context of those ambiguous circumstances. And over the course of any default proceedings, does the trustee need to give either give holders advice on the terms of the documents or respond generally to holder requests for information? In response to the first question, no, uh, that's not part of the trustee's role and could potentially lead to liability for the trustee, you know, particularly obviously if the interpretation uh, it gives it is wrong for some reason. But that said, there are definitely circumstances where a trustee needs to express its view on a point of interpretation. And we do find that individual investors often need a lot more guidance on the documents and the process of a default than experienced institutional investors do. But the bottom line really is that holders should always be encouraged and, and encouraged quite strongly to get their own independent advice on not only the documents and what the documents mean, but also the options that are available to them. Because even if the trustee is able to give some guidance on how a process works or what a document says, it's certainly never going to stray into that territory of guiding holders as to what their best option should be, because of course that uh, takes into account you know, their personal commercial interests that the trustee has, has no view on. On your second point, it really depends what holders want and, and what the terms of the documents say. But to answer that in generic terms, the trustee isn't there to provide information to holders. That, that it's not, that's not its job primarily. It's to act um, to protect the interests of the holders, which is obviously a little different. But it is good practice, certainly, to keep holders informed of material events arising relating to the bonds during the course of the default uh, and of obviously any you know, enforcement, litigation or, or restructuring process that's going on. 
one thing to to bear in mind always is that holders should be treated as a class and so equality of information among them is, is really important that shouldn't be uh, considered as, as preventing the trustee having conversations around material matters with one holder or, or even a small group of holders but trustees should try and avoid disclosing material information uh, other than by way of notices to all holders or, or if they are having those conversations with small groups following up to uh, the, ho the holders as a as a class should be should be done with a notice as, as soon as possible just to try and make sure that there's no imbalance in information. And what should trustees do about indemni indemnification in the context of a default? Trustees will always be indemnified in the underlying trustee or, or indenture, but obviously at the point we get to a default, the issuer can't be trusted to, to, to pay at that stage because it, it may simply you know, not be in a position to, it may not have the money. So um, the, 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 the first fallback for trustees is that they, they're going to be entitled to recover their own costs and expenses um, from any enforcement proceeds before paying out the balance to the holders. The, the trustee or the indenture should make that very clear. But of course, the risk of relying solely on that is that it's never certain at the outset what, if any, recoveries might ultimately follow from the default and, and indeed on what timeline. So trustees should consider very carefully what coverage they need from the holders before taking any enforcement action. And that will typically be a deed of indemnity and an amount of pre-funding to, to meet the expected costs. So the key points to consider are what are the expected expenses from the action that the trustee is being directed to take? So expenses, I, I'd mean things like lawyers' fees, um, you know, court filing fees and things like that that we know are going to happen. But then the second point is what are the potential liabilities that are associated with that action? So such things as, as being dragged into litigation by the issuer or, or a third party where we don't know that's going to happen but if it does obviously that could be very expensive for the trustee so those factors when you try and work those out in advance when you're considering what the instructions are help quantify the required pre-funding as well as the risk of actually having to call on the indemnity at any point and helps you work out whether it's sufficiently credit worthy to be honest if trustees are indemnified and pre-funded by holders to take enforcement action and then subsequently the trustee makes a recovery from the issuer it would usually be appropriate to refund the indemnifying holders the amounts they've given the trustee up front before a general distribution is made to the holders and the reason for that is to ensure that all holders ultimately recover pro rata amounts uh, from their holdings of the bonds and you don't have one group that's penalised for having funded the trustee to take the enforcement action on behalf of the whole class. Excellent. Thank you, Tim. This has been a useful, practical and no doubt timely discussion. Thanks so much. No problem. Obviously, this has been um, you know, very much a high level overview of defaults. Um, but uh, you know, we, we can have further conversations in a bit more detail if anyone would like to, uh, to reach out to us. Yes, please do. Thanks, Tim. Thank you. And on that note, that brings us to the end of today's session. We hope we've been able to arm you with some practical tips to pair with our legal insight. Um, as Tim said, we're only able to give you a high-level summary of each topic in these podcasts, so please do reach out to any member of the team if you would like to discuss anything further. 
Please share this episode as a podcast with your colleagues and encourage them to reach out too if there is anything they would like us to address on future episodes so that we can bring that content to you. Thank you to Katie Signey and Tim Beach for joining me today. And as always, thank you to all of you for listening. We look forward to speaking with you in 2022. Cheers. <laughs>